You could be seated. And let me do my part to welcome you this morning. We're glad you're with us. You might be visiting with us and here for uh, seeing someone's baptism. Later in our service, we'll get to observe and celebrate the baptisms of four individuals. We had four others baptized in our first service at 9 o'clock. But first, we'll turn to God's Word. Turn with me to Acts chapter 28, if you have a Bible with you this morning. Acts chapter 28. Less than 12 hours ago, I was on a plane headed to Albuquerque from Louisville, Kentucky. I had been in Louisville all week uh, for a pastor's conference together for the gospel. And I didn't plan to travel so late on Saturday, but without going into too much detail, we had an unexpected 10-hour delay in Louisville. And that's not normal for me on a Saturday to be traveling late in the day. In fact, I don't think in 18 years of being a preaching pastor, I've ever been traveling on a Saturday evening when I'm preaching the next Sunday morning. I rigidly and stubbornly protect my Saturday evenings. Uh, My Saturday evenings when I'm preaching the next morning are predictable and as old mannish as you can imagine. I'm ironing clothes by 7 p.m., looking at my notes a little bit, maybe at 8 p.m. I'm in bed by 9 p.m. at the latest on a Saturday. So you can imagine a little bit of the angst that I was dealing with yesterday as we were flying, trying to fly, rather, to Albuquerque in hopes of me preaching here this morning. Uh, When you get to 8 o'clock p.m. in Chicago and you're wondering whether that flight's going to make it, you wonder... What if it doesn't make it? What what if we don't get here? What what if we don't get to Albuquerque by morning? And and what what happens? What's plan B? What's plan C? Well, I'm so glad that we've been in the book of Acts together because I could hardly complain about my uncertainties or delays or unforeseen circumstances. I was tempted to complain, but I then remembered Paul, the Apostle Paul, and his travels, and what those were like. Uh, They weren't little delays, and little inconveniences, and little question marks, and little unknowns, and little opportunities to trust the Lord and to pray. Of course, I was relieved, and rightly so, to get home sometime late last night, but you can imagine the Apostle Paul's relief when he finally got to Rome. He'd been longing for it, He'd been aiming for it for a long time. Back in Acts 19, we read that Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there in Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. And it's not that he wants to do sightseeing there. He needs to get there for ministry purposes. Well, about the same time that he said that, which is about two and a half or three years before our passage in Acts 28 today, he wrote to the Roman Christians. We call it, we call it Romans or the epistle to the Romans. And he talked about his desire and his intentions to get to Rome someday, to be there with them. In fact, it's at the beginning of his letter and again at the end of his letter. So you know it's massively important. And let me just read a couple of paragraphs for you from Romans. 
like Romans 1, verse 9. I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's at the beginning. And then toward the end, chapter 15, verse 20, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. There are always new places to go. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So you've got Paul writing that. Two and a half, three years later, he's actually getting to Rome. But what a windy, surprising road it has been between Acts 21 to 27. It would seem that Paul's intentions were simply to go to Jerusalem, then go to Rome of his own volition, deliberately and quickly as possible, just like so many other journeys that he made. But the pathway to Rome, as we've been seeing in recent weeks, well, it came by arrest and imprisonment and trials and defenses and delays and confusion and only occasional encouragement. Remember the promise in Acts 23.11 when Jesus visited, visited Paul in jail and said, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, you will testify about me in Rome. Remember the visit from the angel on the ship in chapter 27, where the angel said, Don't be afraid, take courage, you will stand before Caesar in Rome. And yet even after that, there are some close calls, as we saw last week in chapter 27 aboard that ship. The sailors almost abandoned ship. Remember, the boat was being broken up on the reef. Remember, the soldiers were about to kill the prisoners, and that would have included Paul. And think of swimming to shore in those cold waters and then reaching Land. We saw the last verse of chapter 27 last week. And so it was that all were brought safely to shore, but not easily to shore. And not to Rome yet. They're on the island of Malta. But from the island of Malta, there, there's just one more leg of the journey, and then Rome. Finally, Rome. So let's read Acts 28 together. We'll read the whole chapter. That might be new for you, reading the Bible out loud together. It's what Christians do. It's what they've done for centuries, almost millennia now. It's a good thing to do. 
Acts 28 says this. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and so saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands, belo were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprung up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to our fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. 
For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Well, that's how the book of Acts ends. What we have before us is a story, it's narrative. But I'd like us to consider this a little more thematically if we can. I see four themes related to the mission of the church that we can learn and discern from Paul's example. I think we'll see the ingredients of the mission, the recipients of the mission, the surety of the mission, and the incompleteness of the mission. The first two of those we'll take real slowly. The second two we'll cruise right through. And by the way, next week, we'll actually come back to the end of the book of Acts, just touch on it briefly, and then we'll talk about what happened after Acts, according to the rest of the Bible, not according to church history necessarily, but what happened in the rest of the book of the Bible that's recorded for us after Acts. So, four themes related to the mission of the church. The first, the ingredients of the church. And I see six ingredients involved here, six P words. One is protection, protection. Of course, we're coming on the heels of that theme of protection as Paul and 275 others have made it safely through the rough seas and the storm and the shipwreck and are now safely ashore. God has protected them in amazing ways. And now on Malta, this island in chapter 28, Paul is protected again, this time from a snake. It's cold. They're wet. You need fire to stay warm. Paul's doing his part to gather some wood for the fire. And out from a pile of wood comes a snake. And it latches onto Paul's hand. Presumably it's poisonous. But nothing happens to him. But take each of those in turn because each gets a different kind of reaction from the native people. When Paul's bitten by a snake... They conclude, this guy must be a murderer. He may have made it safely through the storm, but the snake's getting him. Justice is getting him. He's getting his. But then when they realize that Paul doesn't die or even swell up or fall down because of the snake bite, they think he's a god. Just notice the, the superstition and plain silliness of their pagan religion. People who get bit by snakes, they must be murderers. And people who don't die from snake bites, they must be gods. There's nothing in between. This is similar to Acts 14 in the city of Lystra, where Paul and Barnabas healed a man. And the people there in Lystra said, the gods have visited us. And they tried to make sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. 
Of course, not long after, they want to kill Paul in Barnabas. In fact, they actually stone Paul there. Here in Acts 28, it's kind of the reverse. They don't go from, from happy to angry. They go from, from judgment, he must be a murderer, to, to, to good. In a sense, he must be God. It's not good. Surely Paul tried to correct them. Now, by the way, let's just say this in passing. It probably doesn't need to be said for 99% of you, but just in case anyone's wondering, Acts 28, nor any other passage in the Bible, it doesn't encourage the handling of poisonous snakes as an act of faith. Every now and then you'll see on 60 Minutes or 2020 some of these people who are actually doing this, and they think it's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, and this is not an example of that. Paul got bit by a snake on accident, and God miraculously, in this case, kept him from the dangers of the poison. But that is not a given. Do not handle snakes, kids, okay? God may or may not protect you. Usually, when people get bit by snakes, if it's poisonous, then there's trouble. And here in this case, it's not that God is giving a promise to every snake handler. He's showing his protection over his people for his mission, for his purposes. As David Livingstone said, he was a Scottish missionary to Africa in the 1800s. He said, I am immortal until my work is accomplished. Isn't that great? As long as the Lord has work for me to do, well, then I'm immortal. And by the way, if you have breath then he has work for you to do, Christian. The reverse is true. So you can trust God's complete protection over your life, and you can trust that he has purposes as you have breath. His protection may not be pain-free. It surely wasn't for Paul, but it will be wise and good and minuscule. Not one hair will fall off your head apart from your father's will. Then we see provision, provision. Paul and his fellow shipmates, they are provided for through the natives. The natives, they're called. This means non-Greek speakers. So there's probably a language barrier, at least with the majority of the natives and Paul and those with him. But nevertheless, even with a language barrier, even with strangers washing ashore, these natives show unusual kindness. They welcomed us all, verse 2, and they kindled a fire because it was cold and beginning to rain. Then you have the hospitality, not just of the people at the beach, but the chief man of the island, Publius, verse 7. He received us and entertained us hospitably for three whole days. And then you have in verse 10, the hospitality and honor shown to Paul and his fellow travelers from the whole island. They honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Isn't that great? Now note again, just like we said, God protects, but he doesn't always make it pain-free. Note that Paul's provision wasn't always in abundance. Read Philippians 4 if you need reminding. 
of that. Read earlier in the book of Acts or, or read Paul's resume of suffering in 2 Corinthians 11 if you need that to help you out. No, Paul was provided for, not always in abundance. That needs to be said because there are all kinds of false teachers writing horrible books and occupying our airwaves on television telling you that if God really loves you and if you really trust him, then you will have abundance, 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 abundance. Well, no. God provides in his way, in his timing, with his amount. Sometimes much, sometimes less, but always from God's good hand so you can trust it. Then there's power. There's power as part of the equation of the mission. While Paul is at the house of the chief man of the island, he hears that his father is sick. Paul goes to him, lays hands on him, prays for him, and he's healed. That's God's power at work. We've seen that multiple times in the book of Acts where God confirms the spoken word of the gospel with power, maybe with miraculous tongues or with healings. Now remember that God doesn't always use that kind of power. Sometimes he uses the power of a cinched tongue or, or cinched lips. In other words, there are many things that can confirm the gospel or validate the gospel as Christians live the life that God calls them to live. Paul says in Philippians 2, if you don't complain, you will shine like bright lights in this world. Just don't complain. Or Jesus just talks about salt in light, having influence and, and being visible in this world. So... God's power is at work in his people to confirm and validate the gospel, sometimes with healings, more often when they love each other, are holy, or simply don't complain as much as the world. Then we see places. Places, another ingredient of the mission of the church. I'll show you the places mentioned in Acts 28 in just a minute, but let's zoom out first. Doesn't the Great Commission, what Jesus said in Matthew 28, doesn't that have something to do with places? Matthew 28 says, go into all the world and make disciples. And yes, some would point out that really what that means is as you go, Make disciples wherever you go, wherever you find yourself. Make disciples. Yes, but it's go into all the world. As you go into all the world, make disciples. Those who have the gospel need to bring the gospel to people and places where it is not yet. This was Paul's whole point in Romans 15, which I read earlier. He made it his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ isn't yet known or named. He was trying to go to unreached peoples and unreached places. This is what the book of Acts is all about. The gospel spreading to new people and new places among new peoples or kinds of people or cultures, or tongues. Acts 1.8, Jesus said there, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
Many scholars have pointed out that this probably functions something like a table of contents for the rest of the book of Acts. That these are the geographic mile markers for the story that's told in what follows. And you see it in Acts 8.1. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Those same words found in the table of contents of Acts 1.8. This thing is spreading, in this case, through the persecution of the church. As they flee it, they bring the gospel with them to new places, to new people. You think of all the places that we have seen in the book of Acts. Let's just remind ourselves. Here's a, a map. Take a look at this, and you can see Paul's missionary journeys He's had three different missionary journeys over 30 years or three decades. And then the voyage to Rome at the end. We'll put this on the church blog later this week so you can look at it more carefully then. But that's a whole lot of travel, isn't it? But that travel represents the gospel. It represents new Christians. It represents new churches. It represents changed lives. And a whole lot of effort and a whole lot of interesting drama as God has protected and provided and directed. So now after all that, Paul finds himself headed to Rome, but now on Malta, the island. And when the winter is over, verse 11, after three months then, we set sail and they made their way on a ship, by the way, where carved on the, on the front of it are two foreign gods, the sons of Zeus. Ironically, in this idle, trusting ship, there is God's messenger with the gospel going to his assigned place. And by verse 14, he gets there. And so we came to Rome, finally, Rome. But why Rome? Have you ever stopped to ask yourself that? Why Rome? We've already established that Paul wanted to go to Rome. We've already seen that God confirmed that Paul would go to Rome. But why Rome? What's so special about Rome? Well, three reasons for Rome. Number one, for Paul to testify before Caesar in the highest court, in the most public forum. Number two, because at least to the Jews, Rome represented the ends of the earth. It was way out there. It's as far as you ever would go, the ends of the earth. And Luke seems to see Paul in Rome as the fulfillment of the promise of Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. With Paul in Rome, that is starting to become a reality. Thirdly, Paul's plan wasn't just Rome. It was Rome and beyond. Paul intended to go to Spain and to make Rome something of a a new missionary headquarters. That letter he wrote to the Romans back two and a half or three years ago, that was actually like a missionary support letter 
despite the fact that we think of it as having great, thick, heavy doctrine. It is that, but the beginning and end tell us that really Paul's planning to go to Rome so he can get their support and he can, after encouragement with them, move on to Spain. Rome was strategic. From one angle, you could think of Rome as the ends of the earth. From another angle, you could think of Rome as the center of the earth at that time. We've all heard of that ancient saying, all roads lead to Rome. Well, that's because of the Roman road system. And the city of Rome functioned like the hub of a wheel and then spokes going out in every different direction. All roads lead back to Rome. The gospel was already in Rome, but Paul envisioned the gospel now going out from Rome and to the further ends of the world. In God's providence, the godless pagan Romans built the, ro the, the roads in every direction, making a literal pathway for the gospel. We should think of how God is using similar things today, like the internet. The internet's a dangerous place, but Christians rightly, I would say, can tap into it and use it for the spread of the gospel in this world. It's amazing to think of how you can get the gospel to someone via this, well, like the, remember the dial modem you used to do with AOL? With that thing, we're getting the gospel all over the world. And thankfully, they don't, they don't make that noise anymore. Arab world media uh, produces content, stories and songs and testimonies, and then pushes it to Facebook and, and Google ads. And when they get someone responding to it and asking questions about it, then they connect them with someone who can answer their questions uh, maybe even put them in contact with a local Christian on the ground. Back in 2015, Arab World Media gave these statistics. They had 2.3 million visits to their website. They gained almost 300,000 new Facebook fans. They had 1.6 million views of their videos. Over 200,000 copies of the Bible were downloaded. They had 18,000 personal conversations with people interested in finding out more about Christianity. And of these, 5,500 in one year became actively involved in Christian discipleship. Arab world media. You should think about supporting a ministry like that. You can go to pioneers.org and you can commit to give to them. You should. You should think about committing to give or to give more or to give more regularly to our efforts in North Africa. We have two missionary families there in a city where there might be another two or three other Christians. Inform yourself of what God is doing in the world. Pray, get behind it. Get yourself a copy of Operation World. Do you know about that? Operation World. It's a prayer guide leading you through all the different peoples or people groups of the world. It will give you some stats about how 
much or little they are reached with the gospel, and it will give you some things you can pray for. Get Operation World and discipline yourself. You'll soon be smiling as you do it, though. It's not much discipline once you get into it, but, but maybe at first, discipline yourself to pray for the nations in that way. Then we come to partnership. Partnership. Paul was cared for and sent off by the kind hospitality of non-Christian pagans in Malta. But when they got to Puteoli, verse 14, there he found brothers, fellow Christians. Paul hasn't met them yet, but they know about Paul because he wrote that big old letter. And soon word spreads among more brothers and sisters and more brothers and sisters. And they're all coming from all around to meet him and welcome him. It's like welcoming a king. People are traveling 45 miles out to go greet Paul and welcome him in and care for him and encourage him and provide for him. In verse 15, Paul thanked God and took courage. There are Christians in Rome and showing up on on Roman soil, Paul is cared for by the brothers. Because we have fellowship. Fellowship isn't just food and friendships around football, the four Fs of the Christian life. Fellowship literally is more like partnership. In the first century, when John and Jim wanted to go into a fishing business together, they were in koinonia, fellowship, partnership. When Paul says to the Philippians, I thank God for your partnership in the gospel, he's saying, I, I th I'm thankful for what we share. I'm thankful for your warmth and your care, but I'm also thankful for your financial support, that you're in this with me. We are partners. And these people, just briefly for a time, they are partners with the Apostle Paul. Then there's proclamation, lastly, the last ingredient of the mission of the church, and really the most central all these are leading to and supporting proclamation of the gospel. It has to get out there. It has to be spoken. It has to be heard. It has to be believed and received. And that's what the rest of the chapter is all about, proclamation. We could put it under a separate heading and call it the recipients of the mission. There's the ingredients of the mission, now the recipients of the mission. As that proclamation goes out, to whom does it go? There are three categories here. One, the Jews. Once Paul was in Rome, he engages the local Jewish leaders. Why? Well, there's the practical reason. Have those charges originating in Jerusalem now traveled all the way up to Rome? Paul needs to engage that. If so, surprisingly so, they haven't. There are no charges there. But there's a theological reason. Paul has a personal conviction. He speaks of it in Romans 1.16. To the Jew first, but then also the Greek. Paul has a personal conviction that because the Old Testament promises originated among the Jews, that they have a right first to hear that Messiah has come. And so Paul engages with them. He states his innocence. He explains that the essence of his charges have been about the hope of Israel. What was long ago promised is actually what he's in trouble for, supposedly. 
for believing in the hope, the promise, the Messiah, the resurrection, the kingdom of God. These Jewish leaders, they say, we haven't heard the charges, uh, but we have heard of this sect, these followers of Jesus, the Nazarenes, they were sometimes called. And we have heard that they're spoken, spoken against everywhere. And so we'd like to hear more. We'd like to tell you, we'd like you to tell us your views, they say, verse 22. And soon a great many Jewish leaders are at Paul's house. He's under house arrest with a Roman guard chained to his side. And there in his house, a great many Jewish leaders come. And look at verse 23. It's just power packed. It's so pithy. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. There's his mission. There's his message. That, that is worthy of your meditation in each of its parts. What did he do? He expounded, testified, tried to convince. About what? The kingdom of God tied to Jesus of Nazareth. And how did he do it? Well, from the law of Moses and the prophets. He used the Bible. He tried to show them that this was God's plan all along, and it has come to fruition in Jesus. There's a mixed response, as usual. Some were convinced, verse 24, and some didn't believe. What really aggravated those who didn't believe was when Paul quoted a little bit from Isaiah 6. It's in verse 26 and 27 that Paul's quoting Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. It explains their unbelief, their rejection of Messiah. Just as Isaiah, 700 years, came to God's people with a message, and their ears were so plugged up, and their eyes were so blind, and their hearts were so hard that they didn't receive it, and they wouldn't receive it. So that happened again when Jesus was on the earth and preaching, and he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. And now, Paul, it's happening again. Their rejection of Jesus just proves their hard-heartedness. And as they reject this message, it, it further judges them and further hardens their hearts. But then we come to another recipient, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. It's not that the Jews are no longer welcome. They can come. Many don't. Some do. Some were convinced. But the gospel also goes out beyond Israel, to the whole world. Paul says in verse 28, let it be known to you this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. The promises of old given to Abraham were given not just to the Jews but also to the whole world. Through Abraham would come blessing to the whole world and now that's determined by faith. If you believe that that's true, if you believe that Jesus is Messiah and Savior and Lord and King and all hope resides in him, well, guess what? You're in. You got the covenant. You got the promises. You are blessed in Father Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile, which leads then to the third category in case you haven't pieced it together yet. Everyone, 
Anyone who's a recipient of this mission, who gets the gospel, anyone, everyone who, who would come. And that's what we find in the last two verses of the book of Acts. He lived there two whole years at his own expense under house arrest. And he welcomed all who came to him. What did he do when they came to him? He was proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Do you notice the irony? Paul is a prisoner. He is under house arrest. He is not free to leave. He is chained to a Roman guard 24-7. But people can come to Paul. The door is open. And when they're there, Paul will speak to them. And he can speak freely. And he speaks boldly and without hindrance. These Roman guards chained to Paul one at a time on a rotation Six different guards per day, four hours each turn. They're chained to a preacher. They're chained to his conversations with others. And when no one is visiting Paul, I bet Paul's talking to him. I bet he's getting to know him at first. But then he's getting to Jesus. And he's asking them what they think. We'll see next week. Many are coming to believe. Everyone, anyone can come. Who in your life is chained to you? This is not a joke about ball and chain, okay? I mean, metaphorically, who's chained to you? Who's tied to you? Who's near you? Who's in your proximity? I bet for every Christian in this room, there is at least one person in your life for whom you are their closest connection to Christ. Just let that blow your mind and then think of who it is or who they are. There are probably some people in your life for whom you are the closest connection to Christ that they have. So get busy. Pray for them. Talk to them. Move the conversation along. Now thirdly and fourthly, we're going to do these very quickly. As I said, and we're going to zoom out. We've already surveyed the landscape of this passage. But let's consider, thirdly, the surety of the mission. On the whole, let's consider the surety of the mission. What Jesus promised in Acts 1.8 is starting to become reality. When Jesus said, you will testify about me in Rome, well, the book ends with Paul in Rome through that long and windy and twisty path. When Paul says in verse 28 of this chapter, the Gentiles... They will listen. Well, we've seen it. Not all of them. Some will reject, sure. But many are coming to believe, and sometimes many at a single time. It's happening. The last verse, you got to love it. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. 
unhinderedly. We don't use that adverb very much. I'm not sure it would pass the spell check on your computer. But that's the word here in the Greek, unhinderedly. That's the last word of the book of Acts. The word of God is unhindered. It's going out unhinderedly. That's what the book of Acts has been about. The unstoppable gospel of Jesus, orchestrated by Jesus, is spreading in the world through his people, his messengers, despite grave and serious and weighty opposition and potential threat. The word is unhindered, not because the messengers are so great, but because the one who sends them, the master, is behind it all. Jesus said the gospel will be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is a surety of the mission that can encourage us in seasons of dryness or barrenness or less fruit than another season. Fourth, there's the incompleteness of the mission. This is related to the ending of the book, which many people find strange. Some people think that it can't be the ending of the book. Some say Luke must have been planning a third volume. There's Luke's gospel, then there's Acts. There must have been a part two of Acts still to come. Others say maybe the ending got lost, or maybe Luke was going to eventually get to a better ending than this and wrap up some of the loose ends that are still straggling here. And we admit there are some loose ends. What about the trial before Caesar? What did he say before Caesar? What's the judicial decision? We actually know that Paul, after the book of Acts, he'll be released. He'll have a couple more years of ministry before being arrested again, standing trial once more, and then being executed. That's still to come. So you might wonder why Luke didn't record those things. Well, I think Luke ended right here on purpose, and I think this communicates a couple of things quite powerfully. Luke's ending shows us that this story has been completed, even while it still continues. It's been completed. Acts 1.8, it's starting to be fulfilled. Paul is at what was perceived to be the ends of the earth in Rome. But there's also the continuation of the mission. The book of Acts ends like it doesn't end. Because it doesn't. It keeps going. It kept going for Paul, and it keeps going now. The story just keeps going. This isn't a biography of Paul, so we don't need to find out what happens to Paul. This is a story of Jesus and his gospel spreading in the world. And the final word is unhindered. That's how it goes out. It will go out. And it's still going out. The story goes on. It's still being written. One sermon at a time, the story's being written. One conversation with a non-Christian friend at a time. It's, the story's being written. One prayer at a time. 
One conversion at a time, one decision for Christ at a time, the story's being written. One baptism at a time, the story is being written. One church plant at a time, one Sunday at a time, the story is being written. Dennis Johnson, a professor at Westminster Seminary in California, has the money quote on the ending of Acts. I told Asher yesterday, man, I, I, I want to find the money quote on the ending of Acts. And I found it this morning, praise God. And here it is, I share it with you. Dennis Johnson says, Luke's open-ended conclusion implies a to-be-continued that embraces the whole history and mission of the church until the return of Jesus. The invincible power of the word, however fragile its messengers, is shown in the final word of the Greek text of Acts, a single adverb rendered without hindrance. The gospel's unhindered irresistible victory is the note that Luke leaves ringing in our ears. And that must steal our commitment to advance the church's mission of proclaiming Christ's salvation to the very ends of the earth. Well, this is a good Sunday for us to have some baptisms. People here today are publicly identifying themselves with Christ. And they are putting their lot with him. They are identifying with his death, burial, and resurrection as their only hope. You'll hear that in their testimonies, and you'll see it in their confession in the waters of baptism. Let me pray. We'll sing one more song, and then Pastor Ron will come and lead us in these baptisms. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word, for your truth, for the gospel, for your ways in this world. We ask for you to work. We ask for you to do wonders. We ask for you, Lord, to spread the fame and glory of your ways in this world, even in this place today. Do it in our singing. Do it as we ponder, maybe as someone leaves and asks a friend, some questions or seeks out the help of a pastor as we hear your salvation in the lives of these people and ponder it in our own experience afresh. May we give thanks to you and rejoice and be made more bold for your great cause in the world, Lord Jesus. Amen.